Hello, welcome to the Third Age Babylon 5 podcast, where we are three newbies from Europe, experiencing the show for the first, to the second, and the upteenth time. This episode, we are going to look at science and portents, and as usual, we start with our small introduction question, which this time around is, what is your craziest way you are likely going to die? Layla. Uh, that I'm likely going to die, or that I wish I would die, that I have two Whichever of the two is the crazier one. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I always, I always, um, I don't know. I would like to to die doing something that I really, really love. Like I don't know. I would like to, when I go, when I finally have the guts to go back on stage um, and uh, do some poetry slam, I would like to get like I don't know, electrocuted by the microphone. If the that would be a pretty good show. Another thing. Finally, get to travel all the far places I want to travel to. Like I don't know when I go when I travel to Mongolia, and then I have like I don't know the third world war explodes, and I will my plane will crash somewhere over Russia. But I was on the way to my biggest adventure ever. I think that's a nightmare. Okay, and uh, how was it with you, Mike? Also, something you are going to love. Well, technically, it it would be my love who would crush me because I'm pretty sure the one of the craziest way I would uh, um, die is being crushed by all my books. I mean, I just have for the people looking at, at YouTube, you always see the the rather small bookcase behind me, but there's another one standing uh, at the other side of the room, and I really had to size my books down the last time um, we had to change apartments. But if I could have kept all of them uh, or continue to keep all of them, I'm sh pretty sure I would have my own uh, room of books. And I'm pretty sure that that would be the closest and craziest way for me to die, being crushed just by them for tumbling down because it's just too much for the bookcases to keep them holding up. That sounds like it's less the craziest way and just inevitable. Sooner or later, the, the number of books is going to crush you. It's, it's, there's no way around it. Uh, I, I mean, for me, just uh, very immediate, I, I get the feeling I probably uh, our black cat is going to be the death of me because she's always very, very attention-grabbing and, and wants to be close to you, but she's black and it's often dark, so I stumble across her like at least once a week in some horrible way. So sooner or later, I'm going to break my neck doing that. Uh, I, I feel like, I don't know if that's the craziest thing, but uh, it it's, it's also seems kind of inevitable. Uh, yes, uh, we ask this kind of morbid question for a very good reason, because Science Importance is a pretty important episode to this season. Uh, you, Micah, might have not known this because you see the German titles, where this doesn't work, but... Every season of Babylon 5 has a special title, and the title of season number one is Science and Portents. So this is the title-giving episode that you just saw. And uh, yeah, to go over our synopsis, uh, visions of death and generally visions of a distant uh, or not-so-distant tragic future uh, are an important part, because Babylon 5 is visited by a Centauri prophetess of sorts, a seer who has visions of both Babylon 5 being destroyed, and uh, her closest relative, Lord Kiro, being killed by shadows in some way. Quite ominous, and also one of the craziest ways you can die, I would assume. While this is going on, we have another visitor on Babylon 5, Mr. Morden is here, and he goes around selling people either toothpaste or asking certain questions. He, he for me, always has this 
attitude of a salesman, but the pitch that he has is a simple question. What do you want? And he goes around to various ambassadors asking precisely that. While all of this is going on, the conflict between Babylon 5 and the Raiders is also coming ahead as the Raiders are finally launching an actual assault on the station itself. So quite a lot of things going on here in this episode and maybe let's start going around to our first impressions. As usual, this burden falls on Micah first. <laughs> yes, um, well, it was for me quite obvious uh, in this episode where everything will be going. Um, I mean, the, the very first rather obvious thing to me was when the seer, um, it, no, it was, I think her, her relative saying, yeah, she, she was wrong with her prophecies before on my first birthday, she saw that I would be killed by shadows. Um, and I don't know, this was kind of like, uh, the red shirt, um, moment for me. Okay, you'll be dead at the end of this episode or, or something familiar. Um, and yeah, there's this modern guy who creepily asks everyone, uh, what do you want? Um, and at the second point, um, or, or no, it, the second one is the Delen. The first was Jakar, then Delen, and then he goes... He goes for Lando, but there was this short appearance of Kosh, uh, where he like was trying to to hide himself. And there I was, okay, there's something rather shady going on, and there has to be more, uh, especially since everyone like like Lando and Jakar answered this question at some point, which kind of felt strange because they don't know him, they don't know who sent him, who he is, what he wants. Um, and there's this point where both of them just click and tell Morden what they want in, in some dark way. Um, yeah, so. So I would say not a great mystery episode, so to say. It's it's not a lot of, of detective no. work going on. Okay, okay. I, I, it's a very interesting perspective, uh, I feel like. Um, how about you, Leila? Yeah, I have to agree that this moment where Lord Kiro, is that his name? Yeah. Um, says that, says this thing with, yeah, I mean, she's always wrong. She told me I was going to die through a shadow. And I'm like, yes, but you're not dead yet. As far as like my friend thought of what that is, there's still a lot of chance for you to die. <laughs> it's, it's very easy to have confidence if it's not happened yet. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, actually, I would like to ask Micah a question before I start with my first impressions. I would like to know, do you think that Mr. Martin will come back? Do you think that that is a character that we will see again? The point is, since I don't or we don't know at this point what Morden actually is, and I hardly doubt uh, that he is a human being, um, I think there will be some kind of reappearance. I mean, there's this ominous like uh, to to um, words to uh, from Morden to Lando, uh, we will find you. Um, which, if I would have been in Lando's shoes, I would it would creep the hell out of me. Um, 
Yeah, uh, yeah, but I, I, I'm not sure if it's in the form of of Morden. If he will look different, or if he will be just this this uh, bodiless voice we we heard at the end of the episode. Um, sort of a connection there, but not necessarily a reappearance uh, in the literally there. I would presume. Yes, I have to agree. Because I remember that the first time I watched that episode, I was like, I was like, it was like, I felt like the show there opened up a lot of um, interesting topics and really like took a turn. Like I had a feeling of, okay, Hugh, it kind of found its direction, but I couldn't tell what, what it was yet. Um, and yeah, I mean, it was not a big mystery episode. You, know, you were not really like invested in the plot, but you just saw a lot of um, like, like, yeah, a lot of things of how the universe works, you saw them executed, which could get kind of interesting. And for me right now, when I watched that episode, it was like, like we still have these normal stories, this normal daily life on a place like Babylon 5, but you always get this pinch of mystery, this this idea of of, of, of something more myst- mysterious or even mystical um, happening somewhere behind the scenes. And now and then in this episode, you have a moment where it comes through, and I really like to see that. <laughs> And yeah, from my side, my first impression, well, I, I don't really recall my very first impression, but with every rewatch, this feels very much like the moment where we are kind of playing in a sandbox. We have established Babylon 5 as a place, and we kind of know what daily lives look like there. And every single plot of this episode kind of feels like, let's just throw something weird in there and see what happens. Like, what 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 will people answer if there's just a strange guy asking them what they really want and this is kind of interesting because it gives me a little bit of insight into them or how will the station react if there's an actual attack leveled against it from the radars how does it cope with that and yeah I, I i completely agree this is not something where we have a lot of mystery to get invested in it's more sort of this fun let's see what happens kind of feeling for me every time okay so from that let's move a little bit into the main discussion and we have quite a lot of, of big topics to uh, go through. Maybe let's start with what is perhaps the most um, I- immediate or the most mysterious of, of all the plots, which is uh, everything that comes along with Lady Ladira and sort of the state visit of Centauri coming and Lord Kiro's quest for the Eye of the Centaurum. Before we go to that, can we just appreciate the beginning of the episode? Because I really love this, how Ivanova wakes up and is like, oh gosh, I have to wake up. Why does my, uh, and, and then the, her question, why does my mouth taste every morning like, I don't know, old carpet or something like that. And it was so relatable for me. It was, it felt so realistic. Um, and I really like this, this tidbit of, of, yeah, daily life shown there, um, to, to make this this episode a bit more established in, in the whole setting. I really love this. That is really great. I have a problem that it's so easy to identify with. I mean, I just, you know, when I think of space travel, I always think of the problem of getting sick or, of, you know, and then it's like, yeah, okay, but when it's always dark, that's like something, I don't know, most people would have a big problem with. I really like that too. And I mean, especially right now with with uh, the the days getting shorter and everything, uh, it, she's even more relatable because we get to this point right now of waking up in the dark, 
going out in the dark, uh, working until it's dark again and coming home back when it's dark. So, um, yeah, maybe we are living in a space station right now. You are in the middle of nowhere. It's always dark. It's always spinning and you never can open a window for fresh air. It's like the perfect recipe for headache inducing every day. Yeah, I, I completely agree. It's it's set sort of the baseline also why everything is such a hard task for our heroes because they kind of have always to deal with this level of stress. Yeah, but back to uh, the eye and the centauri. I, I really, I was really curious why it was called the eye because if you look at it, it's just this this ball-like structure with a lot of jewelry jewelry around it and yeah i i kind of lost the connection to to the name uh, it, it felt rather random i would as 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 a uh yeah partly as um history uh, arts history um person i would like to know more about that please tell me why also, we never really get to know what it was, what it was really used for, what it was, what its function was. We kind of only are introduced to it as a symbol, yeah. and it looked like it was like crafted so specifically for something, and that information is just not given to us. Yes and no. I mean, if you look at what are the insignias of of kings from from the uh, from our part of the world, it's like yeah, you have this this apple like thing and 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 a staff which that meaning is kind of better known like why is it is it is better known for to us you yeah. know i mean we we grow up technically with it and therefore it's it's more relatable to us to us um and and therefore it's missing to to our to ourselves if it's about others so I mean, there's really like this i always felt like i don't know there was this lack of information what i also found interesting because I mean, always when the eye was shown or when it was about the eye, the soundtrack tries to tell me that this is super mystical and super mysterious. The soundtrack was like like space mystery always. Um, and the dealing with it was mainly like politics, po political basically. And that was kind of like interesting what the characters were actually acting out and doing and what the scenery and the soundtrack were trying to also kind of tell me. I felt like that was an interesting contrast. I think admit, I really, sorry. I think it kind of has to walk this tightrope, right? Where we have to kind of get the eye as a symbol. At the same time, obviously, you also want, don't want Londo to be there. Ah, Lord Kiro, here is the eye of the Centauri Republic, which, as you know, represents this and that and is used for that and this. So I think it's it's great that you mentioned the soundtrack and stuff kind of going into this. Like, it's sort of generic royal kind of crown jewels of sorts. Uh, I, I'm, I'm also reminded, like, if you look at uh, the, the great crowns of, of Germany or England or so, many of the individual, like, uh, stones in them also have, like, very poetic names that are maybe maybe the source of something like, ah, it's the eye because there's this one ruby in there that shines like the eye of a dragon and was probably also stolen from some colony, like, like you would probably expect. Yes, and the characters, of course, have these background information, but we don't have it at the moment. That's why the soundtrack and the plot kind of leads so interestingly, I guess. I have to admit, it's kind of interesting for me to hear um, 
you talking about the soundtrack because I have to admit I completely turned it off the most of the time. It it just comes, it bell almost jumps at my face um, when there are these moments like the dum, it like like when the um, at, in the beginning when the uh, there's some guys are attacked from the raiders and uh, the ship gets destroyed. And when they realized this on, on Babylon 5, and I, I think it was Sinclair and, and Ivanova looking at each other, and then there's this sound like, uh, it, it, it's, uh, it, it's so cliche, parodic. I can't take this serious in this moment. So yeah, that's the moment where the where the soundtrack jumps at me. Otherwise, it's it's more it's it's so much in the background for me. Especially, first season's used very very weirdly in some moments. I have to agree. My favorite moment is always in the very first a real episode where uh, here our telepath pops in him Talia wants to call Sinclair and then he has um. But I don't know, I think I'm just in general a soundtrack enthusiast and I watch out for it because, yeah, I feel like even when the show goes on later, the soundtrack really kind of ha narrates its, its own kind of uh, a thing in the background, definitely. So in the second watch, I can watch out for it much more. There's also going to be much more of it, especially in the beginning, like you say, there are these things that get reused fairly often where you kind of feel like the the budget of the show. So if you, Michael, don't hear that and mostly tune it out, good on you. I think that's exactly <laughs> how it's supposed to go. Later on, there will be moments, I feel like, where it shines a little bit more, but especially in these early uh, early episodes, um, it is kind of the move towards the background. Um, coming back to the eye for a second, though, I, I, I really like what you said, Leila, that we get so much about the political implications and what it represents and such, because... There is a real contrast, I think, between what the eye represents and what it is talked about as, and then when Londo in the end actually holds it in his hand, and it's just kind of this thing, this really tacky thing that is kind of, it looks a little bit cheap, but honestly, like, when we look at real, like, crown jewelry from medieval times, it also usually looks a little bit cheap because it's, like, a lot more imperfect and a lot more tacky, a lot more colorful than you would kind of envision in your typical like fantasy setting like Aragorn's crown is a lot more regal than I think a lot of the real ones just because it's designed to look cool and our sensitivities aren't exactly those of the original royal times um so, so I feel like it feels very true to life that it's this massive deal but the item itself kind of looks eh it looks like something my grandmother would put in her shelf right <laughs> so I don't know it looks yeah, it reminds more of, I don't know, something like from this 18th century, probably again, but that's because of everything the Centauri have kind of reminds us. Yeah. So, yeah that... But I think this this feeling of, of not feeling so well made is <clears throat> because now we have a completely different view on these things. Earlier it was like, um, oh my gosh, you have this this special... Uh, jewelry stone the bigger the better and therefore you were not were trying to cut it the least possible um and especially uh, the the yeah mechanical the the what's called damn it the 
manufacturing process or yes yeah exactly the manufacturing process is so different back there and now i mean there were really awesome things if you uh, really look into it um, but i think the majority was rather or would feel rather clumsy um, from our ac uh, actual point of view right now yeah that is obviously like sensitivities and perspectives having changed quite a lot there um, if we have anything more about the eye otherwise i would uh, move on to lord kiro uh, I would like to say something about the the hair design of the Centauri cool. because I really I really like to to see that um, the bodyguards I think of of this uh, the Centauri um, group they had like rather short hair even though they were trying to to put it up in some way but it wasn't this this yeah I th Dracula like style we have with with Lando or now with with uh, Kiro. Um, so maybe um yeah that's also some sign of, of status there that if you are the higher up you are the longer your hair the longer uh, more it stands up or something like that or maybe it's an age thing um I'm, I'm not really sure but i really like to see this differentiation because up until now i think we always had this yeah standing hair um style with the centauri with with the male at least the yeah. female tended to have this half shaved head just with the ponytail now we have this woman with no hair at all i mean you, but it it wouldn't be that far-fetched to imagine you know you have this 18th century society your hair length indicates your social status and influence and then the woman ends up having no hair i I could see how that might happen to Centauri society, let's let let's say. Um, but that being said, like obviously Lady Ladira also has like a very important position that is kind of set parallel to to sort of the political structures that the, that the Centauri have. But uh, no, it's 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 great to see that sort of the design is branching out here a little bit. Um, yeah, and uh, Lord Kiro, uh, I completely agree that. He feels like the red shot of the episode as soon as he mentions the, the prophecy of his death. That being said, I feel like even if the prophecy had been that he lives a very long and happy life, my confidence in him surviving this episode wouldn't have been that higher. So, kind of from the very beginning, it feels like his plan to regain the eye and just with the symbol single-handedly take control of the Centauri Republic it feels doomed to fail. And once he starts explaining it, it to Londo, I, I think we kind of get this confirmation that this guy just wasn't never on a on a really winning streak, I feel like. I, I don't know how, how your impressions there were. Yeah, he, he felt a bit out of reality. Like he, he had this, this dream. He, uh, he doesn't didn't like the, the situation with, with the Centauri, with the um with their king and everything. Um, but instead of trying to make a real change, he was just trying to follow some sort of dreamy thing he was trying to accomplish uh, that was so far of reality and and even possible to to get through with. Um, yeah, it, it was like okay, this yeah, this red shirt. Um, with a, with a bit of crazy feeling there. <clears throat> and for you, Lena? 
uh, I don't have some something that specific on him actually. Mm. I kind of I also didn't consider him to be a very long living. So I don't know. I never uh, he doesn't have that much face in my head actually. <laughs> doesn't he feel a little bit like a reflection of Londo though? At least for me, this is sort of the the go to idea. We know that Londo has this longing for the glorious past, this longing for returning the Centauri to, to this greater as a lion of the galaxy, as he says. But I feel like this is for uh, an illustration for us that Londo still has a basis in reality. He wants all these things, but he is pragmatic enough to say, well, but I can't be King Arthur and pull like this mythical sword out of the stone and become king of everything. He is kind of more melancholic because he kind of accepts the fact in reality, it's probably not going to be great again like that. And Lord Kiro just feels like he has gone one step further and gone off the deep end because of that, because his desire to return to the old ways is so strong that he kind of loses this connection to reality. Yeah, but even though um, Lando is always saying, I want things to be like they were before, I think he still has the sense of realizing that it wouldn't work that even if you would put everything back to how it was that it wouldn't play out and therefore uh, he he knows the past is gone deep down he knows that uh, at least that that's how it feels for me i think yeah there is kind of this understanding also you know this there is a reason why things aren't the way they are, they were back in the day what happened back in the day wasn't that successful, right? The old way of the emperors of Centauri and stuff ended or is supplanted by the Centaurum kind of because times change because the Republic has changed and on some level at least he realizes that. Um, so g given that the plot isn't uh, going to work out for Lord Kiro, um, he, he is then sort of revealed to be uh, in league with the with the Raiders, and this is the first time we kind of get a closer look at the Raiders, so let's maybe shift slowly in that direction, that side of the plot, we learn a lot more about the how the Raiders operate, and then, yeah, the fact that the glorious Centauri Republic has resorted to dealing with the Raiders on a pretty big scale to, to get back this eye and to um, transport it back to be part of this plot. Um, I'm not really sure. I, maybe I just didn't get it, but wasn't it just Kiro acting with the Raiders and playing all this and the Republic just trying to get this random person we see at the beginning who brings the eye? I, I, I didn't really see the connect. I see the connection between Kiro and the Raiders, but I don't see the connection between the Republic and uh, the Raiders. Yeah, I mean, to, to be more precise, that, that's correct. We have Lord Kira as a representative of one of the old houses of, of the Republic, I guess, dealing with the Raiders. Uh, you're right, I, but I think it's, it's Londo who mentions, you know, still this kind of shame of, ah, we had to pay a human merchant to get this back. You know, it's, it's, yeah. it's not really the... Uh, the, the the republic that gets it back it's more they spend a lot of money to do it which you know once again feels very fitting to them but uh, you can see how this will also have to be spun in a certain way to to fit the glorified narrative right on the other hand it 
feels rather realistic. I, I don't know how the situation uh, is around now with with art objects, historical objects um, getting back to their original owners, but usually it's it's more like this. You have to pay for it to get it back. There are quite rare situations where um, like like um, a war uh, stuff is getting is, is brought back to to their people blocked it i think that's completely true and it's interesting to to draw this parallel to real life because obviously the the centaurish stand sort of on both sides of this right like they they are probably responsible for a lot of art being removed from all kinds of places but at the same time uh the Narn have sort of retaliated in kind, at least in certain pa uh, places, and and managed to get their hands on some pretty important things. So that is that is sort of the Londor uh, Centauri side up to this point. We learn a little bit about the raiders in this episode and how they operate, how their operation has been sort of a recurring factor. And uh, I, I'm kind of curious how both of you feel about the raiders up to this point, because I remember when I first watched the show the Raiders felt kind of like a big deal. I always look back at the first season and it feels like, ah, there is this whole long campaign where the Raiders uh, are constantly harassing the station. But on every rewatch, I'm also reminded it's it's not actually that many scenes where we get to see the, these interactions. They are not that much here. Um, but it's still interesting because obviously the Raiders are the typical sci-fi trope of space pirates, which we often sort of see... Uh, glorified, you know, it's it's pirates of the Caribbean, but in space, and they are like glorious buccaneers that go treasure hunting and such. And in this episode, they are portrayed in this much more mundane way, where where well, they're kind of criminals, and and you can give them money, and they will do things, and they kind of rely on uh, bureaucracy uh, mess ups in in companies to get like information to take people hostage. They are much more akin to real-life modern-day pirates than, than sort of this adventurous type that you usually think of. I honestly never really found them interesting. I always felt like they were just kind of a filler to kind of get more get more of an impression of what a space station as such has to deal with in their daily life. Like, for me, that always looked like, I don't know, like, yeah, okay, the police probably has to deal with smuggling, but it's not interesting for me. That's always how I felt towards the Raiders, I'm sorry. Hmm. No, don't apologize, like, it's completely valid, especially the only times we deal with them, right, is if they are sort of a vehicle for other parties to do things, like the Raiders, even in this episode, aren't that important if it weren't for Lord Kiro sort of working together with them. Yeah, I, I have to agree on that. Up until now, it's it feels more like they like Babylon Five is trying to swat away some annoying flies uh, that are disturbing their their routines. Um, I th I think it's it's also this way because there's no emotional connection or some relevance to the things that got destroyed or stolen until now. There was not like oh my gosh. Uh, there's uh, very important equipment was wrapped because the Raiders got some transport ship and now we have the problem we can't repair docking bay and that, ha that didn't happen until now so 
yeah, they are there. They are annoying, but they don't feel necessary like a threat because there wasn't a real impact to see until now. And I mean, even in this episode, like you said, they are just more like a um, appearance at the at the periphery here, just to to give uh, yeah, Kiro and and the phantoms or the shadows um, uh, some sort of um, yeah connection to all of this like like having a platform to perf to perform for them yeah yeah and i mean this this even goes so far that the station is surprised that the raiders managed to have as big as a ship as we see in this episode there's always a sense of they weren't supposed to be this successful they don't have enough money to do this there must be somebody behind that and i mean it's it's good news for both of you then i guess that in this episode we kind of we deal with the Raiders, right? Like, they, their fighters get destroyed, their ship is gone by the end of it, we know. So, at least for the foreseeable future, I guess we can expect that they are going to be even more peripheral of a problem, if at all. And I mean, even we get the information that just one person um, of, of the two wings going out there, just one person died and one is in uh, recovery. So... They didn't have an impact on them too, um, though I really liked to see Ivanova in action. That was that was nice to see again. In general, like she has been getting most of her like flight hours going against the Raiders, so good on them for that. But I mean, yeah, this once again reflects also this fact that um, they they aren't really like an existential threat to the station, right? Like this is this is uh, much more akin to. Uh, yeah, anti-criminal operations that Coast Guard has to undertake, which is dangerous and important and everything, but it's not its not a war. You are not really, you know, out there expecting many casualties or st uh, something like that. Okay, but if if we uh, have them as sort of this thing, the, the final thing I guess we can ask about them is what sort of is the motivation behind that, right? Like, what's what is wrong in this universe that people resort to this kind of thing? Because it's obviously very easy to to have sort of the adventurer type. Ah, pirates exist because either some people are just plain evil or people seek adventure out there. And, uh, you know, may, I, I'm just sort of making a connection here to, to past discussions we had about how Babylon 5 isn't exactly the most hunky-dory, happy utopian sci-fi universe. There are reasons why we have even modern day piracy, and it's usually because you have like extremely disadvantaged like places where that's kind of the only economy that exists. So, uh, yeah, maybe it's also just one more hint that um, Earth Alliance is maybe happier to have the the raiders around and kind of spot at them every so often when they get annoying instead of maybe addressing the underlying issues that cause piracy to exist in the first place. But it's. It's always like this with everything. You, you rather you rather take care of symptoms than the problem because the the real problem to get to the core of this is always connected with a lot of work, a lot of money, uh, and usually people don't just don't want to handle it or in, in in specific politics don't want to handle it because it usually results in um, yeah a really dry time. Uh, where people have to cut down on on things and everything, uh, and yeah, that's not how you got reelected. Yeah, I mean, I mean, maybe it just re-emphasizes the fact also how important it is that Santiago 
try to have like a visit on the station and stuff in in the past because usually that's probably not the most important thing and not the most popular thing to deal with these deep space sort of issues um i think from here we can like move on sort of to the uh ending stage of what happens to lord kiro and then get to the actual meat of the episode which is mr morton's visit um yeah but uh maybe um about the um the the big ship of the raiders i was it was quite interesting to see that they uh, one of them said they like had to save money for like five years uh, to to build this thing, which means well they were not that successful if it took them five years yes. uh, to get enough money to I mean okay there's there's a lot of things you have to pay the the people need to eat they. Uh, need medic attention. The raider ships, they the smaller ones, they have to um, maintain them or, or rebuild them if if destroyed. But yeah, still five years. Um, considering how frequently they appear, even if it's just in the periphery, is quite a long time. Yeah, it it really tells us that. Or it tells us on one hand how big of a deal a ship of this size is. Just it's a huge investment that you need to make. Uh, and also, yeah, the civilians can't easily do this. Even if you have a bunch of criminals working together for a very long time. It's, it's, I, I guess maybe it's the equivalent of, of the mafia trying to buy a container vessel, right? Like it's, it's, it's not easily done even with their resources. And also it says uh, about the Raiders, they have a rather long breath. I mean, yeah. to constantly uh, get this money together and don't just spend it all the time on other things. I mean, it's it's hard enough to do it in private, but if you have a collection of people um, throwing uh, their money together, it's getting even harder. Especially if these people are the kinds of people that would join up with the ra Raiders, right? Like there's definitely some organization going on here and uh, i mean maybe this also speaks to the fact that this is why they are also able to engage with somebody like lock hero or the non regime earlier on in this season they are at least organized enough to kind of get these sort of bigger weapons deals done and um, accumulate money that way um yeah so we talked about now the importance the creation of the uh, radar vessel and unfortunately it meets a rather untimely end at the end of this episode so um, maybe let's uh, let's talk quickly or briefly about this ending scene about sort of the impression this created uh, before we then loop back to uh, the side of maybe the perpetrators behind this um, because yeah we know there is a double crossing and a double double crossing going on among the Raiders and Lord Kiro, but none of that really matters because within a single shot they get blown up by something. And uh, yeah, maybe maybe let's talk about what that something is, what it looked like, what your first impression on this was. Uh, this is a important episode, so I guess we are going to have many of these moments where I ask for people's first impressions and so because uh, yeah, I mean, it's just lots of new things that we get to see. Well, I have to say, when it appeared, uh, I I had to to think about um, from from its shape, it felt like uh, an, an octopus or a kraken or something like that. Uh, maybe it's it's just because I'm rewatching uh, Sanctuary right now, and there was an episode with uh, a vampiric uh, octopus. But uh, yeah, the the shape and everything really felt like like something. Uh, in that direction to me 
I can definitely see that, especially with like the long sort of appendages and kind of like tentacles and such going yeah. on. Just fits in the pirate theme of the Raiders as well. So it's all <laughs> nicely connected. Yeah, well, the, the Kraken destroys, um, destroys the ship. As always. Well, I'm I'm still waiting then on Captain Ahab and uh, Moby Dick. Maybe one of our pilots or maybe Sinclair is going to become obsessed with hunting this thing down. <laughs> Although, <laughs> I mean, up to this point, obviously, apart from us, nobody knows about it. Any any big impressions from you, Leila? Um, actually, not so much. I can say without spoiling something for later. So, um. I mean, when I first watched it, it was just like, oh, space mystery. And I also kind of felt like, um, I mean, sometimes you have these stories where you feel like someone is getting away with something evil, something illegal, and then just a big, big coincidence in the universe fights back and the person's not getting away with me or whatever. And you know that the people that have a sense of justice then are very, very much comforted by this kind of story. And this was a bit like, um, yeah, a leap of faith in that direction, I would say. More I cannot say because what I can say at this point is definitely that I would like to discuss how the plot in this um, episode were structured mm-hmm. at a later point when we know more about the general world building. Okay, but I like this idea of the question is, is this a manifestation of cosmic justice being exacted uh, out there? That's that a really cool cool tale would also fit the whole prophecy aspect of it right like she foresees this divine judgment that is cast upon this guy that wanted to be a common emperor essentially we could or, probably... the, short, or the short version of karma bitch yes yeah. see i was going for greek tragedy but i mean <laughs> that that is also valid yes Okay, so uh, let's rewind a little bit, because obviously the ship is gone, Lord Kiro is gone, the raiders are gone, the Eye of the Centauri Republic is not gone. It appears again in the hands of our favorite new character, or at least one of mine for this episode, uh, this this bad guy or mystery guy of the week, so to say. Um, but uh, of course we see him under much more mundane circumstances when he first arrives, and Mike, I don't understand why you would question whether or not he's human, because the little the digital thing that he was scanned with by security said it was all fine. He just was kind of not registered yeah. in the registry anymore. So do you buy into his backstory, or are you suspicious? I'm very suspicious. I mean, come on, how often uh, some some technical stuff malfunctions and something is not seen by some scans, the oldest story in the book or one of the oldest stories in the book not impressed sorry three out of ten points <laughs> i always have this fear when i go to the when i have to do when i have to deal with bureaucracy like when i have to get a new id or a new passport i always feel like th- that they type in who i am and then it's just computer says no you never exist and then we have a big problem that's like my deepest fear whenever i have to organize something <laughs> Or if, if something starts getting mixed up, I mean, I don't know how, for how long, and I think it was the first apartment I had together with my partner, um, I don't know for how long the the um, post to him, the, uh, what's it called? The mail, sorry. 
the mail addressed to him um, was addressed to Mrs. And I was, D is there something you're not telling me? Do they know more than me? <laughs> and I mean, it, it, it's getting, it's so quickly that something get, gets mixed up. Like, I don't know, your name or, or your, I don't know, your age, your, I mean, in, in, in the passport, there's written like your, how, how big you are, what, what Ikyla do you have? And yeah, I mean, it's. It easily gets messed up. But I, yeah. I really enjoyed that you gave him a rating of three out of 10 because I completely <laughs> agree. It's the oldest trick in the book and not convincing at all. At the same time, I feel like Mr. Morden has this grin that just tells you he knows. He just doesn't care because he's still going to get away with it. And I, I, I think this is like the biggest reason I'm so drawn to this character here. Uh, I, I absolutely love the way he portrays himself. He has such a slimy kind of used car salesman disposition about him yeah. that is just immediately screaming to me, ah, that that guy is not up to no good. There's there's something wrong about what he's doing. Yeah, well, I have to say when when I hear heard his name, I was like, okay, this this sounds like some fucked up version of uh, a Tolkien character. I don't know, the Morden just, this just shouts at me, I come from Mordor and I will conquer Middle-earth and I will slay every free person on the planet, something like that. And his, his yeah, how he deals himself that just fits in um, to me perfectly. Though I was really happy when he uh, was finally facing Kosh. It was like, oh my god, my troll! is back it is it is true that this is the only time we see a crack in in his kind of character in his kind of theme and kosh doesn't even really have to say anything for for that to happen he's just strolling along and and mr lord knows oh i i can't mess with that yeah and then he has to face kosh because for some reason kosh knows he's there and faces him um and i was it it was really interesting for me to see that in later we get the information that somehow Morden must have managed to um yeah get a bit of the the suit of Kosh destroyed. It was like, oh my god, what we did we miss? The most interesting part of this episode wasn't shown. I mean, this is the part where at least for me it's kind of the confirmation this guy is not a regular like tourist that comes here from the rim because you can't do that with a Vorlon, much less you also can't do that with a Vorlon without the Vorlon fleet showing up. Like the last time Sinclair thought about opening Kosh's uh, suit up, there was pretty much a declaration of war on the table. So this is this is not normal. This is not a normal occurrence that, that that's happening here. And I mean, Kosh is even playing it down. Yeah, as yeah. He is not saying what happened that but he's just, I need something to fix my suit. Yeah, it is definitely like the shortest interaction we see between Morden and somebody else, but definitely a fairly uh, important one in terms of what te what it tells us about what's going on here. I, I can completely buy into that. Um, and maybe we kind of go through these. Uh, what is the next earlier or later interaction between Mr. Morden and somebody that you would like to talk about? Because I think all of them are pretty interesting. 
Yes, all of them are pretty interesting. So I thought maybe we could just walk through them chronologically. We could maybe yeah. start with Car, Delenn, and uh, Rondo. Then in the end, yes. I was also thinking a little bit um, about, yeah, about the production decisions in general on how Mr. Morden and his question is introduced. Because I feel like it could have been a bit more mythical, maybe. I don't know. I feel like the idea is totally great. And here I am totally, I was totally hinged the first time and interested in the universe. And, uh, but I still feel like the way he talks, the way he speaks, the way he makes conversation with people, I always felt like it's too mundane. It doesn't have that much impact. I mean, maybe it's also, maybe it's also from from the writers and producers it's, it's a wanted comment that we have the feeling that there's just a super capitalistic person just really like a salesman who's coming to you and uh, trying to make a deal with you or whatever or trying to know you or how he can do you a favor for the future maybe that is wanted but I always felt like they could have I don't know pers- persuaded a bit more with these scenes than they did like they are totally cool but there was more potential in it it's very interesting because I definitely see the same thing, right? He's very mundane. He, I mean, this is why I'm joking. He, he looks like he's trying to sell me toothpaste. He looks like, he looks on the one hand very convincingly human, very mundane, very simple. But personally, I'm a very big fan of, of, of this exact portrayal here because it feels almost like he has this disguise and every so often it kind of cracks. He, he walks around in his human suit or with his human persona, but then he encounters Kosh and dents Kosh. And that is just something that doesn't click. Or he stands in the hallway and suddenly there's shadow cast over him in a certain way. There is just, he has conversations with all these people and we can talk about those in detail later on. And just in the middle of the conversation, uh, the switch is flipped and suddenly they start talking to him exactly like he wants them to. And in all of these instances, it's not quite enough to definitively say there is something bigger going on, but they keep adding up and it's just somewhat off. And I'm not really left with a really cool portrayal of a bad guy, but just sort of this oddity. But kind of now that you put it that way, that we have this, we are introduced to this person that looks human, completely is accepted as a human by the scanner, and then really acts like a businessman or something, like a very cool and relaxed and experienced businessman that deals with politicians. And then kind of has all of these cracks because he is more like the, like a shadow of it or like a, like a, like a, um, idea, like a concept of it. And it, and at every corner, it doesn't really work out. That is kind of cool, actually. Now, yeah, the, this view on that I like a lot. Ha, convinced. But I, I totally see where it's coming from. Where I can also uh, completely imagine this version of the episode where they lean much more into this like mythical element for him, right? And that could also be really, really interesting. Uh, how about your your intri- insight there? Which kind of bad guy do you prefer, Micah? Well, I, I really like the, the overall idea. I just don't like how it's portrayed. Mm. Um, because it the problem is for me, I can't really decide if it's, yeah, just 
badly made. I don't know, there's something missing just for me. I would rather say either go more into the mythical way or go more in the direction of uh, there's nothing here to see and then immediately crack. Yeah. yeah. But that, that the way it was made here, there's something, I, I can't really put put my finger on it, but there's something that just doesn't make it work for me. So I would say, yeah, go more in this direction or then in, in, in the other one, but not how it's done here. Because it's, yeah, it's, it's not like like a big reveal to me or um, the guy is not really creepy in, in a sense to me. It's just like, hmm. okay. Maybe we see here the results of very long and painful meetings of producers, of writers, of their uh, money givers, and we see the results that everyone accepted, but no one. That is very possible, especially this early on in the show. And I mean, Michael, uh, your reaction here is, I think, very typical for for first comers to the show because. Uh, Layla, to some extent, and definitely uh, on my end, we always have this thing. We, we've we seen the show a bunch of times. We know we really like it. So we are very quick to give the show a lot of benefit of the doubt, right? We have a lot of confidence in the writing because we know where it's leading. And so if we see something like this, it's easy for us to say, ah, surely there is a big plan behind this. Surely we can assume this is that way because it was intended this way and definitely not because there was a bunch of committee meetings that went wrong. Um, but for the production side, this is definitely still this, uh, the, this era where uh, JMS, the creator, is trying to write a show and he has a very clear vision, but then he's also trying to sell the show to a studio, which is giving notes. And these notes sometimes get in the way or realities of production get in the way or uh, somebody is directing an episode that maybe doesn't quite get the vision that, that originally was there. So um, if we look at the credits for all of these episodes, you see that in the beginning, in the first one or two seasons, there's a lot more variety, and then you kind of notice that the creator of the show starts selecting the people that he enjoys working with, and others kind of disappear. And uh, that as that happens, the vision of the show becomes a lot more coherent, a lot more uh, linear. So, I mean, there's there's unfortunately a lot of of series that are going that way. If I mm. um, think of of Doctor Who when they first remade it, the first. At least the first um, season was rather, yeah, it it felt cheap in in a lot of ways. I mean, they were trying to capture um, everything from from the previous ones, but it felt cheap. It felt off. It wasn't like it was like okay, come on, we we do it a bit on the side way. Not it didn't feel like it was proper made. Yeah. On that note, I should say I li really love Doctor Who, so uh, I, I I can do both. I can really like something, but I can still uh, rant about how bad it is. <laughs> so please <laughs> don't put me there. This is why we just said the special about Event Horizon, right? Like we did basically that for two hours in there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I know for us this is, is really important because obviously uh, this is the perspective that we really need from you, right? Like. Uh, talk about this experience because otherwise we just sit here and say just wait it will get good and you know that's not that's not a good way to enjoy the early seasons of a show like this so it's 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 always great to to hear sort of how well does it stand on its own and uh, how well uh, it's it sometimes doesn't okay let's definitely do this uh, as a separate thing then um 
Was there anything more about the production side or the presentation of uh, the whole Morden's angle? Uh, because if not, then this is a good opportunity to start talking about the actual contents of the conversations that he has. Yeah, well, the first one with the Jakar, um, after he is asked several times, what is it you, that you want? And giving nice answers. I, I really like the one with what do, we, what, what do you want for me to answer? What do I want for, for dinner, for this evening? I, I really like this one. Uh, yeah, until he gets um, to the point where he starts talking what he really wants, like his deep down, darkest, deepest desire. Uh, I would, I would, um, yeah, rephrase it um, about the Narns destroying the Centauri Republic until really until the point of, of salting their fields and killing everyone and everything. I, th I think that adds it up. I mean, he's doing it way more um, equivalent than I am uh, doing right now, but I think it would be too much to um, repeat it completely here. I would enjoy a dramatic reading, but I mean, whenever Jakar says anything, that, that is something that we would enjoy to reenact. And, well, we have to face it, we wouldn't be able to um, replace him anyway, so we just skip that. Unfortunately, that is absolutely correct. And yeah, this is a this is a very good summary. Um, was this a surprise at at any point, or was this very much in line? I, because at least for me, this feels like the essence of Jakar right there. Like we we heard him talk before about making flutes of the bones of the last centauri for non children to play with. Like there's definitely this darkness in there, but also everything that comes before this sort of much more jovial way. He kind of dodges the question around uh, is 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 really really fun. Although I think it is kind of this confirmation that we've been talking in recent episodes about this rivalry, almost kind of playful rivalry that Londo and Jakar have. And I feel like this is the moment where it really rings through. Yeah, but at the heart of it, Jakar is serious about this. He wants the Centauri Republic destroyed. He wants the Centauri to be as gone from the universe as possible as this kind of revenge. Or do you see this differently, Leila? Yeah, I was just thinking because I had written down as a discussion question, which is probably not possible to completely answer with yes or no, that that written down, is he 100% serious? Like, is there really something where he would sit down satisfied like, all my goals are reached when we have wiped out the Centauri? Because I feel like, I feel like the question of, what do you want? If you could have anything you wanted, what would you really want? That is such a weird and abstract question and he's still so heated up by the argument he had right before or feel relatively close before with uh, Londo that I feel like this is just a snap overreaction of you. Like he has this spot in his head and he like completely plays it into the extreme. Like, okay, you ask me here, you have your answer because he's been lied and because, but I don't know, I it's up for discussion how serious that is or how he just plays into this scenario out of our emotional reaction because he's annoyed because he had a long day because Londo is being annoying. Like, well, I, I said earlier his, his darkest, deepest, darkest desire. Um, and I mean, okay, we don't have Delenn's answer, um, but maybe this this dark part is, is just the, the bigger thing here. I mean, it's like... We have we all have this this moments where where everything is bad, where you I don't know 
where someone is saying something you don't even know this person and you're like oh i could, I, I want to kill you and five minutes later you oh this was why why was i so agitated yeah. so maybe this is yeah like like some some triggered really dark depressing moment there um because i mean there's especially i think it was jakar um is asked yeah and if everything happens like you what you said right now then what mm. and he is like basically i don't know so it yeah and it's interesting because that last moment is for me what convinces me that he's totally serious about this although i can completely see uh, how it might be interpreted as the more gut reaction agitated reaction due to the circumstance but I kind of read this this last moment as he has this heated reaction and then Mr. Morden kind of goes one step further and says, okay, and what comes next after that? And Jakal has this sort of quiet moment of reflection. Okay, what does come next? And it's sort of this, honestly, doesn't matter. It's not only just that he doesn't know what he wants after that, it's actually kind of not important anymore what he wants after that point as long and he specifies this as long as the security of his people is guaranteed and i feel like this was kind of this he has this agitated reaction at first and then this quiet moment of reflection and he doesn't really change his answer in that moment he doesn't kind of go oh god i i of course not seriously right um so this is kind of how where i would see it although you know it's it's open for debate definitely yeah, um, I kind of, I mean, you didn't see like doubt in his eyes there or anything. There was nothing in that moment that made you doubt it, but also he was kind of. Absolutely. And I feel like this emptiness that came afterward, this, this, and what then, and that, like not having an answer to that, um, it definitely kind of showed how this biggest desire also kind of ran into a kind of insecurity or uncertainty there. Um, but what we could maybe agree on, and that will be important, I don't want to spoil something like that. That is something that we will talk about again at some point, to put it that way. We we don't have Jakar running around telling everyone you want to commit genocide in general. Like, that's not really, I mean, he has those dark sides, he fights the Centauri, but that's not something we see him doing a lot. And suddenly Mr. Morden arrives and just really triggers this side of him and we can take a note that he comes from this world that has been so much terrorized by the centurion whatever so he has definitely has this aspect inside and something about mr morden let that come out and come forward and that's maybe something to keep in mind we, we see a lot of different sides of him and that is also a side that is there and he can trigger it and it comes out and it takes over i think that is definitely an important point and I would like to actually formulate that into a question for for all of us um, how do we feel about this triggering process because I can totally see that it feels almost supernatural the way that Morton just repeats his question and gets an answer every single time or almost every time but at the same time you know, it it also feels a little bit like an interrogation technique of just this simple question repeated and basically methodically peeling through the layers of sarcasm and masks and defenses until you get to the truth. And so I, 
uh, maybe we can consider this. Like, does this feel like Mr. Morton is using maybe some kind of telepathy? We know this exists in this universe, so, you know, it wouldn't be crazy to imagine that there's some sort of suggestion going on. Or is this really just him sort of finding this spot and poking at it until he gets the right answer? I feel like for finding the spot and poking at it, he did not work hard enough. I mean, okay, we also didn't have hours for one scene. That is also something to have in mind, but it goes too easy for that. Yes, and they are ambassadors. They are aware that they are like public figures and of much importance. So I feel like if you annoy them, they would probably like if you are very extravagant drink order or something and not their biggest wish of wiping someone out. I feel like it had to be supernatural. Otherwise, they are very... Yeah, and I mean, both of them could have gone at any point. They're like, fuck off, leave me alone, and then leave, go somewhere else. Or just, I mean, I think he was, was he in in Jakar's room? I'm not sure, but even if that was the case, you could throw him out. Absolutely. You don't have, you don't have to answer him. And since it was also, also easily... Um, that he got his answers. Um, yeah, I would say there's certainly something more going on than just some psychological um, questioning at the and hitting the right point. I can totally buy into this. And the second conversation he has, if I remember correctly, is with Dylan, right? Yeah. Which is good because this also gives us another hint that there are more things going on because Dylan is an ambassador. She speaks to a lot of people. She isn't very prone to losing her composure and her forehead doesn't glow every day. So once again, something is unusual here. So maybe let's let's talk about this interaction a little bit because he doesn't really get a straight answer out of her, but we get a reaction which is nonetheless very telling and it is, at least I would read this as fairly terrified. Yes, and she recognizes him. I mean, I, sadly, I haven't written down her exact choice of words. She said, she says they're here or they have arrived. And Though I have to say, I'm not sure. I, I, I wouldn't say she was terrified. It, it felt more like she's unsettled about it. She doesn't like it, but not like, yeah, terrified, scared or anything. Just... Damn, something will come. I mean, definitely we, we, we talked about Jakar and Londo having the possibility, having the ability to send him away. She's the only one that actually utilizes that ability, right? She uh, is unsettled, I think is the best choice of words, because she's not terrified to the point of she can't do anything about it. She just very quickly sends him away. I think there is a certain sense of urgency about that, right? She, she needs yeah. to get him away maybe because she has the sense he has something supernatural about him that could make her actually give an answer or something to that effect. But she has kind of the awareness and power to just say no and and, and get get out of him. And that seems to be something that, you know, maybe is uh, intrinsic to the Mimbari themselves as something biological or so because she has this glowing unicorn, uh, uh, unicorn forehead, which that obviously begs the question, how does she know him or whatever he is? I think it's one more hint that he's not a normal human, right? Because why would she know somebody like that? Uh, so he, he seems to represent something other than that. And presumably something the Mimbari have dealt with before. Though I'm not... Sh sorry. 
And I just wanted to add that her quick reaction of throwing him out also kind of shows that maybe she would also have a part that would give like a gloomy, dark or um, terrifying answer to this ultimate question that he asked. But it's definitely one that is not strong and not as uh, easy to 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 get out of hiding than in Back to Car fights. Mm. That's very fitting because we know the Membari are capable of wanting something as extreme as Shikar describes, right? They had the Membari Earth War. They were on the verge of basically bombarding Earth back into the Stone Age. So it's it makes sense that she can definitely have this darker side there. And she's obviously like very strong in controlling that. Well, I'm, what I'm not sure about is um, if she is recognizing um morden as as source or whatever or if it's more like the the yeah the the bigger thing behind him that she um realizes at this moment because maybe she's just too composed to to react the way i would react but if there's some creepy person uh, at me and i would realize oh my gosh this is some dangerous or, or whatever person um the normal reaction would you look at this person because you don't want to leave that one out of your sight um but she is quite yeah slowly she's holding her her unicorn uh head uh, and and uh, yeah this this realization moment that you have with with reflecting in her eyes she's not turning around quickly but rather yeah composed slowly so I'm not sure if it's really directed at Morden himself or the bigger thing he's representing. I think it's an interesting question. I would lean more towards the bigger thing he's representing just in the way she phrases it. And I. it also hints to me at the fact that she must sort of understand kind of the power dynamics here because it's notable that obviously... Morden could probably force her to give an answer, right? If he can dent Kosh's suit, he probably has some kind of powers that could be very dangerous to her, even just on this physical level of if he wanted to harm her in this moment, he probably could, and he doesn't. And maybe this is something that she understands more than we do, which is why she's able to not constantly look at him, because at least on some level she understands he's not a physical threat in this moment or so. Or maybe eyesight has something to do uh, with giving an answer. Who knows? I mean, it would make a lot of sense because a lot of telepathy has kind of this idea you need to see somebody, eyes are the mirror to the soul and all that kind of stuff. So that, that definitely would symbolically at least make a lot of sense. Okay. But, well, there are far too many ifs and maybes in there to make a proper statement. That That's the mystery part where we just can't really, within the scope of this episode, get to it, right? Um Next, I think, would be Kosh, right? We talked about him. Yeah. Before we go to Londo. And, uh, yeah, at first glance, it's a very similar reaction that we have between uh, Mr. Morden and Londo and Mr. Morden and Jakar, right? Yeah, it feels rather rather similar, especially there. His, his first reactions and his answers uh, to, to shake him off, which also represents how familiar both characters are in, in some sense. Definitely. Um, Londo feels to me in this early response is very much like a man who is approached very often by people who want a favor. 
and he's just completely yes. over that. And I mean, for Centauri culture, this makes a lot of sense to me. He is somebody of influence. People constantly want this, and he just has no time and patience to deal with it. Yeah, that also fits the end. Um, I mean, Micah already said that uh, this promise of, no, don't worry, we are going to find you, would actually uh, freak anyone out, I guess. Um, Lomdor just smiled because he's like, okay, so they want a favor at some point, I can give that. Like, that's just a game he's so familiar with, but he also is convinced that he will get out of it alive and well. Yeah. I mean, he's definitely recognizing Mr. Morton as something more than just this random person, right? Uh, he doesn't really seem to recognize any of the higher powers that Dylan is maybe familiar with, but definitely he's part of the game. He's kind of on the same level. Yeah, though what I don't understand is that he's yeah so so positively accepting it. I mean, I'm this this promise we will find you is rather creepy. I mean, this is stalker material. Um, and on the other hand, yeah, this there's an an voice without a body, and mysteriously the the eye was. Um, saved uh, obviously out of the the destroyed um, ship. If this person can do this, what the hell would it want from me? And that would creep the hell out of me if I would be Lando, because compared to what we've seen until now, uh, this what the Centauri are able to do is far more. Um, cute compared like what the Mimbari could do and yeah then being in such in, in this situation the, uh, no no <laughs> I don't want to be there I think it just tells you a lot about the kinds of people that Londo usually deals with right totally and I feel also like this contrast that we have talked about earlier about this a soundtrack that kind of tries to tell us there's something mythical about all of this and then we have the Centauri dealing with it like some state symbol politics deal and um, I guess in the last scene that also shows that everyone would be freaked out would be kind of scared of what kind of person did that interact with what they want for me in the future and he just smiles like 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 yeah just expecting another deal he can deal with I find that wonderfully awful it is but then it kind of begs the question we said uh, the interactions between Jakar and Lorden and Londo and Warden are kind of similar, mirroring each other, showing the familiarity. But Londo is the one who gets the gift in the end. So what is it that makes his answer the one where Mr. Morden kind of chooses to go along with him and not the others? I have an idea. Okay. But um, I have a few ideas and it's difficult how to put them out without any spoilers. Um... I feel like this is always your answer. I have an idea, but I can't tell you. Yes. It's very mean. I feel mobbed. Micah, don't feel too bad. Another podcast has a wonderful format where they have a bunch of newbies and then halfway through the episode, they throw the newbies out and say, give us all the questions that you have. We are going to answer them in this segment you can't listen to. It is horrifying. So... Be glad that you are at least part of the conversation still. Well, I can still tell you I know where your bed sleeps, so be nice to me. <laughs> yes, it is. Once again, I'm also dealing with very terrifying people who have terrifying uh, stalker abilities, I see. 
because I mean, if, if we look at if we look at it like uh, with uh, uh, Delenn did not give them an answer at all, like the point he wanted to get to, he did not get to with Delenn. And um, um, in in Ricard, he found so much hatred. He really found the wish to wipe a whole species out. And the species that could cause this hatred in Jakar, that could cause Jakar to wish for genocide, this species is, um, yeah, they're, uh, 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 the representative of that is Londo. So that's a theory to have here. The other theory would be that Londo was from the two people who gave him a response. Londo was, a, was the response thinking of himself. He wanted to have his empire back. He wanted to have this. Um, glorious uh, old times back or that of his people but he didn't actually talk about wiping someone out like he didn't mm -hmm. murder a few other billions he just wanted to have his kingdom back or his empire but on the other hand yeah his empire is the reason why the others want to, want to wipe so many people out so you could think of where on the side of this coin he actually stands but it has I think I would even without knowing anything more I would assume it has something to do with this quality of of of, of causing this hatred maybe i'm too practical there but i would say um the part the lando's wish is far easier to fulfill i mean this this jewelry this eye is far more easy to get and bring it to lando and the centauri than wiping out a, a whole um race uh, so yeah i mean i i really really love the idea that the choice that mr morden makes has more to do with the answers he received from the others rather than londo that's 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 a really cool angle i don't think i've heard that before um to be fair londo's wish goes a little bit beyond just obtaining the eye right but it's but it's, in this moment it, it's it's the easiest thing to achieve for him um and i mean technically even with this small rather small deed at least that's how it feels to us um he has done quite a big thing for lando and the centauri and therefore he can um, get the most out of it while the i mean like wiping the the centauri republic or, or the, the entire people um would be much more bigger thing to do uh, which would cause probably more trouble um, because I'm pretty sure even though the Mimbari are not uh, essentially happy with with um, the others, I doubt they would be um, just sitting by and watching um, yeah, and another people just getting wiped out. So I think the the problems or the the casualties that could happen there, the uncontrollable things, um, are much larger with Jakar's wish than with um, with um, yeah Lando, and the point is, what is it? What to 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 get to the point? What he wants is what he wants is get everything back how it was, um, and well, technically this 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 item, this jewelry, this eye, is essentially just that it's a relict from the past um that was as as a symbol of of what the Centauri republic was what it stood uh, stood for and therefore re-establishing re it in 
his symbolic position, again, is exactly that what Lando wished for. And he can use it in Centauri politics to achieve a lot of his goals, definitely. And I also kind of, now that, he, in, that we talk about what he gets as a gift again, it's like, it's also a bit of a cruel gift because he, he hands it over to him to kind of keep his hunger and his dreams and his desire for this old times going. It's like, like, like keeping the hope up and not, uh, not as Londo would start to accept that things are the way they are. So it's really kind of to keep the pyre of this, um, loving, loving this old empire to keep that going. I think that's good to keep, to keep his wish alive. You could summarize it. It's because a, otherwise it, it it might have happened that he would say, okay, it's it's over, we have to start new or do something different. And just sit in the corner and get drunk every day to the over. It's interesting because Londo's wish is one that it's very easy, like you described, to fulfill, but at the same time it's never going to be really fulfilled. It's It's very easy to give him the eye, but at the same time, things are never going to be again like they were because his vision of the glory days, the golden days, are kind of this ideal that never really was true, right? So it's it's kind of this ideal thing where it's it doesn't really have an end point. You always just kind of chase this dream and giving him the eye to keep this going. Yeah, like you said, it's it's a cruel gift. It's it's very poetic in a way. And I also feel like it's this the smallest possible effort on Mr. Morton's part to create the biggest possible chain reaction because, yeah, Londo is smart enough to really play this to his advantage now. But also maybe creating a chain reaction for himself because, as you said, it's, it's, it's a goal that is not achievable, um, but you can keep him hungry with with giving tidbits of what he wants or the idea of that, like keeping his dream alive. Uh, and therefore he might have done the first step of more to follow. Um, and he, yeah, and using Lando for whatever it is he wants from him. Which is quite, I'm sorry, just this one. Um, it's quite interesting. He's asking a lot of people what they want, but the actual interesting question is, what the hell does Morden want? It's a really good question because we always have to ask ourselves. His entire business model is, you tell me what you want, I give it to you, and now you owe me a favor. And in the, in the situation with Londo, if we assume that Mr. Morden is really the guy that brings the eye back, we know he could blow up the radar ship basically at will, gather this eye from the wreckage and get it back to Mr. Mo uh, to, to, to Londo. Somebody who can do this doesn't seem like someone who's very easy to buy Christmas presents for, right? Like, he has a whole lot of things at his disposal already, so, yeah, what can Mr. Morden want? And it, it feels like favors, influence, this kind of th stuff, right? Yeah. Also, now that we take a look at the only two people maybe who gave him an answer, because here we don't have to take a look at Delenn or at Kosh, but just compare this and we can see that the ones where he could get with his, yeah, or if it's just an interrogation technique or if it is something supernatural or whatever, the ones that he could actually get through to, the first person 
was full of hatred and wanted to kill billions of people for revenge. And the other person was completely lost in nostalgia and wanted to build up an empire that just is at another point in history at the moment, not at, at, not in its golden age anymore. So these were the two possible answers we got, and both kind of carry their own darkness because we always, I've always now put um, Jakar's answer as the bloody one there. But if you think about what it means for the Centauri to build up their empire again, that also means slavery and death for millions of people until they have that that um, side again that they yeah. had that kind of influence. So the both that gave him responses were in response to each other, actually, and also, um, yeah, in response to each other in parts, but also from their own very, very dark uh, visions. That's my it definitely is. And it's also, if we think of how this goes through, Londo's wish, even though it doesn't sound as bloody at first, is the one that would also make Babylon 5 impossible. You can't have a community of many small races coming together on the space station and having diplomacy if there is one giant empire around that's just mutually exclusive. So it's, it's definitely... He goes basically with Londo, who has a wish that is fundamentally incompatible with what this show is about. So we see a little bit of conflict there. Whereas, you know, as tragic as it would be for the Centauri to disappear, there's nothing about Jakar's answer fundamentally that would make Babylon 5 impossible. Yeah, well, it would just maybe exclude uh, Naren from a few diplomatic <laughs> meetings. It would create a lot more needs it would create even more need for international courts to be finally established in this universe. And they would have a few ambassador seats uh, empty. Yes. So, do you have anything more to add to this? I don't think so. We talked about the radar side. We talked about the Lord Kirill side, we talked about Mr. Morden at length by this point. The final thing we maybe can talk about is Lady Ladira. Oh. Uh, you say Lady Ladira. I was uh, wanted to say Sinclair because, oh my gosh, he finally, finally let someone in on his problems and talk to Garibaldi. Yes. yes. Just took him ages. He finally addresses the mystery that is chasing him around space. He does. It's, I, I'm. It's it's notable. He's the only one that doesn't get asked what he wants, and it would have been interesting because it's probably just. Uh, can you tell me what what the hell is happening in my own head? Why is there twenty four hours I don't know about? Can you can you can I hire you as a private investigator? Maybe. In my head. No, but Michael, what do you think about the fact that the Membari definitely wanted him? Like, how does that add up to you up to this point? Not at all. I mean, it, it's, there is there has to be something they want from him. They he is useful for or whatever. There is obviously a reason. Uh, at least I I hope for them. Other that would be rather scary. Um, but yeah. We have absolutely no hint of why, what it is. So it's. I mean, it's, instance. Yeah, it's it's a beautiful instance of it. Answers a very important question for us. 
Why is the guy who always jumps into the fray heroically the commander of this station? Who in Earth Force thought that would be a good idea? And we finally learn, nobody, absolutely nobody thought this would be a good idea. They just couldn't get the money to do the decision. So for, for tax reasons, essentially, they had to make this happen. Uh, but of course, this opens up a lot more questions. Why do the Membali think that would be a good idea? Yes, it's definitely something to look out for in the future. But kudos to Garibaldi to getting this far in his investigation. Like, that is some high-profile stuff that he managed to do, so he's being a good detective. And completely off the topic, do we see Sinclair and Garibaldi in the to uh, toilet at the, at the end of the episode? It, it looks like they were washing their hands and then drying them. It's it's one of the great rivalries between Star Trek and Babylon 5, and Babylon 5 prides itself to have bathrooms on board the station, which Star Trek never manages to do. So, yes, I think we even, I don't know if it's in this scene, but we see that there's special toilets for methane breathers, so, you know, it's, it's high-end technology on this station. Yeah. Well, I, but, uh, yeah, the, I'm, I'm sorry, I just have to say, I really loved this scene because it was like, wait, is there a toilet? Oh my gosh, they have toilets there! But it also... The kind of conversation that they wanted to have in a place where no one would, like, buy Yeah, on the other hand, I wouldn't have private conversations on a toilet, I'm sorry! <laughs> yeah, can have both, both, both sides now that I'm doing the work. But yeah, it's a cool detail. I mean, for me, it's also kind of this book into the episode. We start out with a very mundane effect of Ivanova waking up and just you are on a spinning space station and you kind of just work there. And I feel like this is uh, at the end here, the same place. Like when does Sinclair have time to worry about his own like past and mystery? Basically never. He has a station to run. He has all these other problems. There's just... A radar attack on Babylon 5. So when does he get to talk with his security chief? When they're on the loo. That's basically the only free time they have. So they do it then. And I kind of... It's kind of this bookend of... All of these cool things that we want to serve with this story... We kind of have to like push to the side and to the periphery. Because there's just too many more important things to worry about. Um, There's one more scene I would like to appreciate now that we're at it. Because... Sure. One that I absolutely love is also right at the beginning, the conversation that uh, Londo and Jakar have while they are waiting for the um, transport for the campaign in the Jakar world. And I had to watch it twice. I had to skip back to the beginning because um, I was getting food. And the second time I watched it, I only looked at the poor civilian standing right in this point. <laughs> And it's like, oh shit, oh shit, two ambassadors discussing of who wants to wipe out who and I'm stuck between them. Oh no, oh no. That was great. And I mean, he keeps staying there at this, exactly between those two. He's not going a step back or a step to the front. No, he is sandwiched between them and just, oh my God, please, please open elevator, please. And then when he gets his chance, then he's off. Oh, it's one of these moments and Babylon 5 has a lot of them where the extras that don't get a speaking role that are just usually in the background get moments to really shine. And this guy that played a random human civilian who has no name, no voice lines, managed to speak volumes through his like 
just every body language that you had of being the most uncomfortable person in the universe at that point. Yeah, that was absolutely great. I mean, not everyone would be a freak like us at sitting there with popcorn. Tell me more. <laughs> oh, wait, actually, I can do this. No. <laughs> yeah, we will probably just follow them into the elevator to see the bickering continue. Or with, with, with a recording device or pencil and paper. Keep talking, keep talking. I have my next, uh, my next uh, thing for, for my uh, entertainment uh, evening. But it's also this kind of almost tragic moment where we talked about all the serious, you know, implications of what these both people are wishing for and the, you know, space political implications of what they are saying to Mr. Morden and stuff. But at the same time, you see them in front of the elevator. And if these two weren't two ambassadors with like really a lot of power hand at their hands, that would be quite cute. And it could be like a quite playful friendship at the end of the day at some point. But unfortunately, both of them... You totally see that they have such a matching energy. Yeah. But the energy is so matching. And so that also, again, I felt like this was really like the most unnecessary conversation they ever had. Like ambassadors would literally not discuss anything like that. You really just, be they, they they are stuck in there because their energies match so well. And sadly, they were born in positions where they hate each other to the very core. That was very, very nice portrayed there. Yes. Yeah, well, I had uh, at this moment, I had to think of um, the serious mesh um, where the protagonist, uh, I'm not sure how many watch the series. It's, it's about. It's a great um, staple of, of television, so people should yeah. be familiar. Okay. <laughs> I don't know, but some things are, it's, it's like. Uh, Takeshi's castle who is loved in Germany but if you would ask a Japanese person it's like what um, so yeah I, I really like the there was this moment uh, with the protagonist saying yeah let's let's why can't we just invite the north uh, the people from north and south and give a big drinking party and the last one standing is the winner um, and this is one of the moments I really felt this um, because yeah that that would be a nice solution for for all the problems there, especially because also, we've seen the two drink together, right, in the bar, admiring the dancer. So it would work, at least for these two, it would work. Though I I have to admit, uh, at in there I read a really interesting uh, thing this uh, today uh, that there is um, a programmer who is uh, trying to to develop, yeah, like like online or a digital war uh, frame. Uh, so his his dream would be to um, bring the wars from the physical world to just the digital world, like, yeah, like playing an online game um, instead of actually destroying and killing people. And I mean, this is so utopian, but I really like this idea because in the end, yeah, th that's how a problem should get solved with no one getting actually hurt and nothing getting destroyed. I mean, yeah, it's it's, it's utopian, but I really I really like this idea. That's an entire Star, Star Trek episode right there from the original <laughs> series that we can discuss, but that would have to be a special outside of this. Okay, in this case, um, our usual latter segment, because uh, as usual, we want to talk about 
the tapestry of Babylon 5 a little bit, the things that make this show so special and weave it all together, because we are still very much in this era of Babylon 5 where it is a 90s show, it is individual stories week by week, but at the same time, there is a through line through all of this, and we already touched a lot on a lot of these things, so maybe let's just quickly recap the things that we've already picked up and the things that we expect might come up in the future from this episode. Um, we already talked about the fact that Sinclair's mystery finally gets addressed. The entire dynamic between Londo and Jakar gets examined again. We even talked a little bit about how the Raiders might be an indicator for the Earth politics that are going on back home. So all of the big through lines that we have at this point come through. But looking into the future, given that this is the episode that the season is named after, what do we think might be the impact of all of this? I mean, the most important part, which we actually didn't uh, talk about, I think, Leila, you were trying um, to to talk about it, was with uh, the lady, what was her name again? Ladira. And uh, yeah, the, her prophecy, because at the end of the episode, her vision is still there, as she phrases it, um, of, yeah, Babylon 5 getting destroyed uh, and Sinclair even gets... Uh, to see it, um, like while she's sharing it, like I don't know, some Vulcanian, like a mind meld. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, the the threat, the Damocles sword, is still hanging uh, above Babylon Five, more more shaped than before. I have a suspicion why we didn't talk about this. At least for me, this is always the case. This isn't news. In this like <laughs> first season alone, there have been at least two instances where alien fleets were gathering around Babylon 5 wanting to destroy it. I feel like Sinclair is sitting there or should sit there and say, okay, um, in the future, this station might get blown up in a horrible accident or war. Yeah, that's kind of what I signed up for. What else is new? Yeah, it, it kind of feels like it's just another Monday. Uh, it's so regular that there's some chaos or the the station is being threatened um though i think um this time it gets a bit more of if importance because it's we know it will come because we already got the verification that this seer actually can do shit mm. um and but it's on the same t at the same time it's so vague so mysterious so yeah un pronounce what exactly is going to happen but are we even sure i mean alex we have already been introduced to the to the fact of what happened to the previous stations absolutely well not not in every detail but yeah in every detail but are we even sure that we are seeing babylon 5 here like is that is there a specific feature that everyone says oh it's babylon 5 at least when Sinclair gets the vision, he would know this because all Babylon stations have very unique, like outline state. They are all like all Babylon five state. All Babylon stations follow the same general idea, but they were built differently. This is a nice rule, and that you mention it because one of the reasons they are different is this last Babylon station was halfway financed by the Membari, and they were very cheap skatish. So. 
all the Babylon stations before Babylon 5 were actually supposed to be bigger, better defended, better equipped. It's just they ran out of funding. This is why Babylon 5 is relatively small, even though it's still like a very big place. Because that was something that I was not sure about at that point. Mm. But what I what I have to say at this point again, I, I mean, our, our listeners will already probably be aware of it. That is that I have a theory about the option of foretelling or of looking into the future specifically for how the Babylon 5 universe works, which is one that I cannot share yet, Michael, but we will get back to this and I will share it with you and we will discuss it in every detail and it will take a long time, I guess. And Alex, have we ever posted that question? Because what I'm referring to is our special discussion for The Road Home, where also this theory could be discussed. I wouldn't say it is confirmed in it, but it could be discussed. Have we ever posted it as a we will have to double check, but I suspect no. Yes, because yeah, I have a theory on how it could actually in universe be very well up to even scientifically be explained why looking into the future in this universe is absolutely possible and a fact. And that's uh, interesting that here it is hinted at it. But um, yeah, it's it's up for discussion. I'm not saying I'm right on that or that it's ever stated 100% that it works. Yeah. A lot of discussion that Maike is not yet privy to, but will be in the future. But she can't, unlike the Centauri, can't get hints of that and no confirmation. So, unfortunately, you just have to trust us. I just wait for the episode or the, for the point where you get, can say, okay, now I come up with all of my theories, all the things we just barely mentioned, and I'm just sitting here, okay, come on, tell me, talk to me. The good news is there are going to be a few of these, like episodes where we sit here very tense, get your first impression, and we finally, ah, and here's like 12 things that we've collected that we can now properly address. Uh, the, the bad news is most of the time that just opens even more questions for you. So uh, up until the very end, I think there will always be things that we will be nagging you about. That's a good story. I, I I hope it will be. Um, but okay, uh, we have the destruction of Babylon 5, of course. I already really enjoy that we already had the question, will Mr. Morden come back? Who knows? Um, so far, Babylon 5 doesn't really have the biggest habit of bringing back these villains of the week or these people of the week, but through lines keep returning, so maybe this is something. Maybe in half a, half a year... Garibaldi will once again talk to Sinclair on the toilet and be like, oh, by the way, I finished the investigation in this Morden guy that you told me and I found out he was actually an alien or something like that. Well, maybe we should just, just open up the, the reappearance that it's just through connections, not necessarily the characters themselves, um, which is more likely to happen than one specific character. Then there is only one last question I would I would pose for the tapestry. I think we all are in agreement and accept that the whoever Mr. Morden represents will find Londor again, like they said, and there will be a price for what he was gifted here. Any speculations what that price might be? Uh, I, on my part, I have absolutely no idea because I really can't imagine what it would be such a 
powerful being would want from someone so normal like Lando. I mean, of course, we could put it down to to something like like uh, connected to his position of of influence and stuff like that. Um, though I really, yeah, on on one hand, I would find this rather boring because it would be the most obvious th thing you would want from an ambassador. So maybe it's something more personal that would be interesting. Um, and yeah, the, on the other hand, something complete, completely freaked up crazy stuff. I think, Leila, you can't really give an answer to this without spoilers, right? Oh, no, this is great because I don't know what you are hinting at here. Oh, perfect. I don't remember from the future what this prize was exactly. Um, so that's great because I also have no clue at the moment. <laughs> um, but what I can actually, what I would, the, the direction I would think of now when without knowing exactly what's next uh, would be that I don't think a creature so divine could really ask for anything back but would maybe really like want to play with this side that they triggered inside Londo and Jakar a bit more and would get satisfaction. I mean that's a very oh. interesting perspective that it's not really a transaction in the sense of gaining something it's more like fun Yeah. All right. I think unless there's uh, any point that either of you wants to, to still continue with, uh, we can go into our outro. And as usual, we pose a little outro question, which we are also going to post later on on Twitter and other socials. And for this episode, it's going to be one that came up in our discussion. Was Jakar 100% serious with this wish or was it more an impulsive sort of desire that he was talking about when he answered Mr. Morden. I think both cases can be made. Maybe it will lead to some interesting discussions and those will keep us busy until next week's episode when we are going to talk about TKO. If you like this episode, give us a like and subscribe or even share it with uh, anyone you think might be interested. You can find us on uh, Twitter, still i'm working in theory on a mastodon account it will come at some point or on instagram and on facebook where we also have our own group we are the third age podcast without the just third age podcast everywhere you can of course also find us everywhere you can find podcasts but of course here on youtube we are the cutest because you can see